Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on episode 84 My name is Dwayne Osterlund, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Also, don't forget to share your story. Go to our website, click on the tab on the side that says share your story and tell us a message of hope that you would like other listeners on the Addicted Mind podcast to hear. Um, I'd really appreciate it and I'd love to have your voice on the podcast as well. If you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or rate and review us on iTunes. Really appreciate it. I think we're almost over 200 now. I can't believe it. Uh, That's awesome. All right, on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Herman Lopez, and he is a writer at Vox.com, and he is doing a project called The Rehab Racket, and looking at addiction treatment, looking at some of the issues in addiction treatment, and uh, exploring those and bringing those to light. I really love the work that he's doing. I think it really challenges the addiction treatment community a part of the community that I'm involved in as well to provide the best care for people out there and looking at these stories about how we can improve help for people who are struggling with addiction are just so critical and important. So I really appreciate that uh, he's doing that and I think you will uh, enjoy this episode and get a lot of value out of it. So with that said, let's start it. All right, everybody, welcome to The Addicted Mind. Uh, My guest today is Herman Lopez, and uh, I found you online. Uh, One of your stories came up in my feed about the rehab racket. So I reached out to you and asked you to come onto the podcast and kind of talk about this. So I'm definitely excited to have this conversation. But first, do you want to tell us a little bit about you? Sure. So I'm Herman Lopez. I'm a senior correspondent at Vox.com. 
I mostly have been writing about drug policy, criminal justice issues, but most recently in the past few months, I've really geared up towards this rehab bracket project where the idea behind it is to investigate the cost and quality of addiction treatment in the U.S. I've just heard from a lot of families at this point. Um, actually, we've gotten more than 1,100 submissions to our survey at this point. Wow. Usually patients and their families just telling us, look, uh, we're trying to get addiction treatment, but it's expensive. It's often ineffective. And those kinds of problems, um, just kind of teasing out what's going on, why this is happening, how the system can get be improved. So tell me a little bit about what interested you in doing this story or how did this story start to come about and develop? Sure. So I've been writing about the opioid epidemic for a few years now. So that that was already definitely in, in my radar. And just over time, I've heard this, I mean, I've seen this repeatedly, like policymakers are trying to put more money into addiction treatment. That's something that activists have called for for a while now. But one of the, at first it felt like a, this contradiction almost that like, there was also this understanding that a lot of the addiction treatment that's out there isn't helping a lot of people, that it that it's inadequate for a lot of people. It is an evidence-based for in, in some cases. So I wanted to under, kind of wrap my head around this, like, okay, if we want to pour more money into this, are we sure that money is going into something good and worthwhile and effective? And so I just started talking to families, started talking before, even before we launched this project, I just started getting like a, a like sort of like a purview of, okay, am I, am I onto something here? This seems like a, does, is this really a contradiction? And it's ultimately that's where this project came about where it's like, yes, we probably should be pouring more money into addiction treatment, but at the same time, we need to be doing more to make sure that addiction treatment is good. And that's kind of what I hope this project serves is like it makes sure that that addiction treatment is motivated to be good by someone holding it accountable. Right. And I, I think that is incredibly important to, to have good addiction treatment for people out there. And addiction is hard to treat. I mean, uh, right. we know that from the evidence that it's a, it's a difficult topic. So I'm excited that you're doing this and shedding light on all this. I saw on your website, you had a, a form for people to fill out and talk about their treatment. And how did that all develop? Sure. So part of it is this understanding. I think People who use drugs and people who actually go through addiction treatment are underrepresented overall in the conversation. Uh, I think that's changed in recent years, particularly with the opioid epidemic. Um, people have just tried to, to take, and I, there are all sorts of like reasons, some of them racial, some of them socioeconomic, that people have taken this more empathetic and sympathetic view towards uh, victims of the opioid crisis. So I think that's, that's one thing that um, motivated me is to just like, okay, I want to hear directly from these people who are actually affected. But then the, the second part of this is like to tell, to like really show how well addiction treatment is working, we need, I think I just needed to reach out to as many people as possible who have actually gone through the system. And unfortunately, we don't have like much empirical research in the way of this. We don't have much data in terms of like how addiction treatment is serving a lot of people. So I, I thought, well, we short of that, we can at least do this survey and it can come about. It was also partly inspired by, we did this, this previous project at Vox for um, emergency rooms where we asked for people's emergency room bills and we got a lot of eye-opening stories from that. So that part, that was, this project was partly a motivation, like motivated by that, um, just, just this idea of like, okay, now we can shed a, a light on this different part of the healthcare system. What have you been finding in, in, these, in these surveys and what are you seeing in, as you're writing this project? So 
the most of the stories have ranged have at least contained some sort of cost element the the ones that i've received that's that's a great majority of them whether the treatment itself is good or bad varies from person to person like whether they see it as good or bad um whether they see it as evidence-based or not has has varied from person to person but i think what has really stuck to me is that even the people who i like eventually found something that really worked well for them got them into recovery and has helped them massively a lot of them are still telling me that they spent like thousands tens of thousands sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars on that treatment and that that i think has been one of the most alarming things here is like we have this system health insurance that's supposed to protect people from these catastrophic costs and that's really the big big thing i've learned through this is that insurance is not really doing that in a lot of these cases like there are so many barriers involved uh whether it's that they just won't pay at all whether they'll make it difficult to get treatment at the facility you want to get treatment at and whether sometimes insurance companies will refuse some facilities and send you to facilities that are just by some of the measures I've seen, actually worse. So it's it's like insurance insurers themselves don't seem to really know what is good or bad treatment. I think in large part because they haven't been involved in covering this kind of care for a while. So that's that's kind of like the the big thing I've taken away. I should say that we're only a few months into this project, and it's a there's it's going to be for a whole year. But so far, I've I've really come out of this just thinking like something is really wrong on the insurance on the cost side. That even if we have good or bad treatments is like we need to we need to address that separately from whether treatment is evidence-based and how to make that more effective right i think that's such a common story i mean i hear all too often is somebody who has maybe a son or daughter who is struggling with addiction and they spend their life savings their retirement uh all of their money to try and and help the person they love and still sometimes that isn't effective right one of the most striking things for me here was what early on right before we launched the project one of my editors and i googled like how do you pay for addiction treatment and one of the actual pieces of advice was well remortgage your house and I, that just stuck out to me because like, if you're Googling how to pay for addiction treatment, that's not the answer you want to see, right? right. Like refinancing your house is not usually something that people want to do. Right. So like it, it just stuck like some, like to me, it was just like something is really wrong with the cost element here. I mean, this is treatment that we, like you and I both know it's, it's life-saving for a lot of people right. that they would have to potentially risk losing their house to pay for it is is incredibly alarming. So that, that was one of the things that really motivated me early on, particularly on the cost side of things, on, on focusing on that element. And then what's also scary about that is that it's not guaranteed to be successful. Right. Yeah, that, that's the other element of this that has really come up is that, I mean, one of the easy, uh, this well, not easy ways to think about this, but like one of the ways I think about this is like medications for opioid addiction. Like we have really solid research for medications for opioid addiction. We, they're not going to work for everyone. Like nothing in addiction treatment does work for everyone. But generally, just based on what I've talked to experts, what I've seen in the research, it's like the, the best treatment for opioid addiction overall. And yet most addiction treatment facilities don't offer any of these. Not naltrexone, not methadone, not buprenorphine. And that to me just speaks to the lack of evidence in a lot of this field, like in any other healthcare setting, if you had medications that are successful, you would expect them to be offered at just about any hospital, any doctor's office and so forth. But in addiction treatment, that's not the case. And to me, that speaks to just 
why one, one of the reasons that they're in effect that this treatment system is often ineffective for people is it's really just not operating on the best evidence. Right. I mean, if you think about it, addiction treatment is a young field. I mean, 12-step approach to Alcoholics Anonymous came out of a desire to help people when no one knew what to do at all. And that was in the 30s. Right. right. And so it's really a young field in some ways. Right. And I think it's also, it's easy to look at some of this, some of like what I'm saying and see like, oh, so the addiction treatment system is just bad. They're evil and, and so forth. I don't see it that way. What I think of in this case is, look, for, for a long time, society, uh, like whether it's policymakers, whether it's a healthcare system itself, whether it's health insurers, neglected this area of healthcare. And that forced addiction treatment to come out of these like community groups. So you mentioned 12 step right. AA, like addiction treatment had to come out of there because nobody else was doing this work. And yes, definitely. So the, I think that's so, that's such an important point to make. Right. And, and that's, that's why you see a lot of what you see now that like, look, the 12 steps works for some people. It works particularly for alcohol addiction based on the research I've seen. It's, it can work really well for some people, but it, when your system had to come out of that, it's not going to follow those, the same standards right. as the rest of healthcare, the same evidence that we would expect from, from this kind of system in other parts of healthcare. And that's really, I think that's really the, the crux of the problem here is like, it's not about pointing fingers. It's not about blaming anyone in particular. It's that now we are in this situation where we have to wrap our heads around of like, okay, how do we fix this given the reality that we're in right now? And I was reading one of your articles that you had written, and you had four major points. And one of them was what we talked about a little bit earlier, which was the insurance issue of how, how do we pay for this level of care for people that we have to address. That's one thing that we were talking about. But then this is the second one, which is we know little about addiction treatment, that it's a young field, that we really have to learn more about it and learn what, what is the most effective way of helping people who are struggling with this. Yeah. And I think there are like two levels that you can easily see from this is like one is the individual clinic level. A lot of these treatment facilities don't track outcomes themselves. When right. They do track outcomes are usually like these really crappy surveys where they'll just like call someone up and if they happen to pick up the phone, they'll like ask them, do you still use drugs? And the person who doesn't want to lie to the per the facility they just went to will often say yes, even if they are still using drugs. So like these right. surveys are crappy, like the outcomes that individual clinics track are pretty bad. But then on the other level, governments themselves don't actually track outcomes. Like the CMS has thousands of ways to track outcomes in clinics, hospitals, and so forth. It doesn't have those same measures for addiction treatment clinics. So that that's how you get this place where we just don't have much evidence on what works on in the individual clinic level, because it's just not something that anybody's really looking out for. Right. And I think working in the treatment field myself, it's, you know, people are there to help people and the research part of it, that concrete evidence that you want does kind of get left behind. We want to look at that individual and make sure they're going to be safe and they're not going to um, overdose. And, and we look at all of that stuff, but we've got to look at this other part too. And I totally agree with that. We got to do the research. We got to look at it. We got to really get the data to make good change. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of understandable if you're like in this situation where you think this patient, if you lose touch with them, they can overdose and die, that you're in like this rush constantly trying to make up for that. But I mean, 
it's that's also true in a lot of other healthcare settings and still right. they manage to track these outcomes that's a good point yeah so it's it's a it's like a matter of striking this balance where yes you you definitely want to do all this stuff to keep patients in touch with you so and making sure that you're you're giving them the services they need but also i, I mean we just need evidence to make sure that what we're doing is working otherwise it's just kind of like flying blind here. And, and I think that's, that's yeah. what's led to all the problems we have now. Right. Well, I think that is changing. I mean, I think the research is starting to, to, to evolve. I mean, I'm beginning to see that with a lot of research around addiction and trauma and the body and understanding all the biology and, and looking at the neurochemistry of it. I think that is beginning to happen. And we're beginning to be able to put that into addiction treatment so we can be more effective. Right. And I think that that gets to like one of the other points that I've seen here is that we do have some research, some of it coming up that shows what works for, like I mentioned, medications as one example. I mean, we also have evidence for like cognitive behavioral therapy for motivational interviewing and like stuff like, like the 12 steps for some people are an approach that works. It's just a matter of like actually using that evidence, trying to like figure out when this evidence actually applies to individual patients. And I think the treatment field has in some sense has been slow at adapting this, but from what I've heard, there's a, there seems to be at least more push to do this. I mean, just based on the, the federal survey data that we have of treatment facilities, it does seem like more facilities are offering, for example, medications than they were in the past. So there are like some signs that, that, that that's changing. And yeah, but, but, it, but it's, just, it's still just a big problem, this idea that like we have some research showing what works and it's just we're not really using it yet. I think this even talks to a bigger issue of like mental health treatment in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, like often these issues are wrapped up with each other. So one of the the people I've talked to for one of the stories we did was this woman who not only struggled with alcohol addiction, but an eating disorder. And the way that those two interacted was was horrible. Like they would feed off each other. Like the, the eating disorder and the alcohol addiction would feed off each other. The symptoms would just make each other worse. So she needed treatment for both at the same right. time. Right. And often she just had difficulty getting that because there weren't, there either were mental health facilities that weren't doing addiction treatment or there were addiction treatment facilities that weren't doing the mental health eating disorder side of things. So it was just, just a struggle for, for years for her to find something that works. Uh, ultimately, she found uh, a, a halfway house that helps her, and now separately, she's going to a therapist for the eating disorder. And I mean, personally, I think that's still like a disjointed solution, not something that she should have to go through. But at least it's working for her, and at least she found something. But it speaks to the difficulty in actually getting there. Right. I definitely think that's true. I did an interview a while ago with um, Ann Fletcher, who wrote Inside Rehab. I don't know if you've if yeah. you found that book or or, yes. or read it, but you know she really talks about looking at like how do you create treatment that works for individuals. And a lot of times it was you know take your resources and apply it to those different things that work for you, mm-hmm. and use that instead of going to one place just for inpatient treatment, it might be better to do long-term outpatient treatment. You may get better results. Um, but, um, I mean, I think this, you know, this is what we're looking at. How do, how do we do this? Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, like we know addiction and mental health and physical health too, in, in a lot of cases is very individualized, but it's just like this idea that like normally, like if I have some sort of heart problem or I think I'm having some sort of heart problem, I can go to like urgent care or hospital or my primary care doc 
And they'll tell me like, okay, maybe I can't deal with this myself, but here are the services you can use. And they'll like try to find something that fits for me and my situation. We don't, we just don't really have that in addiction treatment or mental health. In a lot of cases, you just kind of go somewhere and hope it works. Then you try the next thing and hope that works and that, and then so on and so forth. And I think that's one of the reasons that it gets so expensive for a lot of people. Like when I look at those tens of, because they're just trying something like different things here and they're hoping something will eventually stick. And maybe they'll eventually find that thing that sticks, but only after like spending thousands or tens of thousands. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's part of uh, refining treatment is being able to, to do that. I think, you know, working in the field, everybody, like you said earlier, comes in with this, you know, they're such an individual that it's hard to find the specialties that sometimes you need all in one place. You know, if you have an eating disorder and you're at an addiction treatment, but you don't have eating disorder therapists there, how do you get that expertise into one space where you can treat one individual? It, it is. It's, it's, it's extremely challenging. And, and I think as part of addiction treatment, we have to figure that out. We have to continue to work on this. And then that's one of the reasons I like what, what you're doing in this project is to, to shine light on it, look at it, and say, how do we make this better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that just sticks out to me is like a lot of these places don't even do like referrals. You would think that referrals are like the easiest thing. I mean, obviously you have to set up partnerships, like a treatment clinic and to, to know where to refer people to. But like, I think for that, that's like the low hanging fruit here is like if you're a mental health facility and you have somebody with eating disorder, but you can't treat their alcohol addiction, at least find a place that you can link them to if, if they need alcohol addiction treatment. And same thing for the addiction treatment clinic. Like if you have somebody with eating disorder, at least find a place that can treat that eating disorder. Right. A lot right. of places aren't even doing that right now. So like that, that just speaks to like how uh, the, the, the care just simply isn't comprehensive enough right now. Right. So hopefully that's going to improve. You also mentioned uh, on one of your articles, and I did an interview with them earlier on another podcast, an organization called Shatterproof mm-hmm. that's trying to improve treatment. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the things that they're doing that has, has really impressed me, I mean, it's come up again and again, just organically in all these stories I've, I've been reporting is they're trying to set up this system where you can essentially go online. And I've kind of called it in my head. This isn't a perfect analogy, but it's like a Yelp for rehab where you can see like, okay, what, what does this addiction treatment facility do? What does it provide? Um, how evidence-based is it? Like, I don't think they'll have like exact percent success rates or anything like that, but it'll, it'll generally give you a feel for how this facility is and whether it's good and whether it'll serve your particular needs. And yeah, that, that, that's one of the biggest things right now. Like I mentioned, like just finding treatment that works for you is so difficult right now. That's why people just go from facility to facility. Um, and I think that's one of the most impressive things that they're going to be doing here is just trying to alleviate that problem to some degree. Um, And I think one of the things that might come out of that as they do it is that treatment facilities will just gear up to fit that model of more comprehensive care because they'll want to be, they'll want to get good ratings to the extent that's possible on this, on this app that uh, Shatterproof is doing. And so they, they might start thinking a little more comprehensively about what they do. And I think that, that, that could create some good incentives for the industry as a whole. Another thing they're doing is just getting insurance companies more, to more seriously cover addiction treatment, um, which is a huge problem here. I mean, just it's not just that insurance companies don't cover addiction treatment, but they just often don't know what quality care is. So just developing like quality standards for them, making sure that they're actually covering good treatment 
making sure that they're covering the right amount of treatment because that's a big problem right now. It's like often people get like 28 days and that's it. When there's like a lot of research showing that you need at least 90 days of treatment, whether inpatient or outpatient or whatever other level to, to actually get fully into recovery. Um, that, that, that's something that insurance companies often don't cover right now. Right. You need long-term care. I mean, that's with, in my mind in, in working in this field, 28 days, just, just not enough. You need, you need long-term help and support and that, that can continue over time as you get better, as you, as you work through your recovery, you need that support. You're not, you're not going to, 28 days is going to be pretty tough. Right. And I mean, I mentioned 90 days, 90 days is what, uh, NIDA, like the federal agency says is, is like usually a good mm-hmm. point to, to reach, but some experts say like to really, really reach full recovery, you're going to need like five years. And yeah, I mean, that sounds like a lot, but at the same time, if you think about other mental health issues like depression, bipolar disorder and so forth, people will be in, in those treatments for years, if not the rest of their lives. So that doesn't seem too surprising for me. I and mean, we're talking about these diseases that are complicated, involve the brain, involve environmental issues and involve social issues. I think, yeah, it, it is going to be complicated and it's probably going to require a few months, if not years. Yeah. I usually say it's like a three to five year process of right. jumping in and, and really getting uh, recovery that takes a lot of a lot of time because not only do you have to get away from the behavior or the addiction, then you have to repair all the exacerbating events that cause you to go back into that addictive process to escape and avoid emotional pain or hurt or sadness or depression or anxiety or whatever drives that addiction. So now you have to take care of that. So you got to get the support to get away from the substance or behavior, and then you got to rebuild your life, and that just takes time. Yeah. And it takes uh, yeah. support. Yes, it takes a lot of support. And and that that's another thing here is that like it's just the the lack of support out there for these people, often due to stigma, is is so enormous. I mean, basically it's impossible as a reporter covering addiction in any way to not come across the word stigma multiple, multiple times throughout right. the story. Just because it's such a huge deal. I mean, we're talking I've heard from people who like uh they they try to talk to their doctor about addiction and their doctor just like yells at them, tells them to just stop using drugs as if that's remotely helpful. I've heard um, from people, this one guy who was on, who who was on medications for opioid addiction and his primary care doctor was constantly telling them to get off the medications, even though they felt that that's what was keeping them in recovery. I mean, just, just stories that run the game. Like sometimes people will go to the ER and the doctors will like revive them on from like an overdose with naloxone and then immediately start, like yelling at the patient for, for overdosing in the first place. It's like just the lack of compassion that you don't see for other healthcare issues. And yeah. the, the big thing is just, it's just stigma. For a long time, we've seen this as a moral failing. We've left this to the criminal justice system. Like that's a sign that this is seen as some sort of moral failing and not treated as like a public health issue, which it is. Right. And that just, that drives me nuts. Um, you know, most people, when, when I work with people who are struggling with addiction, I mean, to tell them to stop is like, that's the worst thing, you know? Yeah. They know that that's why they're here. That's why they're looking for help, you know? And it does, it takes an incredible amount of compassion, understanding, patience, uh, encouragement. It takes a positive, you know, I think people who have struggled with addiction already are filled with a lot of shame and the choices that addiction has 
you know, they've had to make, you know, when they're in active addiction, most of them, most of those choices go against their own internal values and they already feel miserable. They already feel horrible. They don't need to know that. Right. If that worked, no one would have an addiction in the first place. <laughs> right. Right. It doesn't work. It takes compassion. It takes kindness. It takes love. It takes understanding, patience, and, um, and, you know, and that willingness to be there with that person through that process. And that moral, uh, that moral failure just drives me nuts. I just hate it. <laughs> yeah. Tell. It, it's just, it's one of the things that like, this is a story that actually I, I reported on, uh, I think it was last year before this project, but I talked to this woman who just went to this needle exchange and she, she got sterile syringes there. But what, what stuck out to her most from that experience was just that the person she got the syringes from smiled at her and treated her with respect and said, you're welcome here. And like, if you need anything else, just don't feel free to ask. And she said that more than anything, that motivated her to get into treatment because she yeah. knew that there was hope for her. She knew that just some, that pe- someone out there did care for her, even, this, even if it was a stranger, and that like helped her get into treatment. And it's just... Just like so obvious, like of course people are going to react to like compassionate, empathetic care better than they are to just getting essentially yelled at for for something that they feel they can't even help. So right. it's it it in some ways it's kind of frustrating that we have to talk about this at all because it seems obvious in some at some level, but it it is just in such an important point that just treating people with respect will often go much further than not. Right. And trying to use shame as a motivator to, you know, shame somebody into behavior change, especially around addiction, just isn't going to work. Right. It doesn't work. It's never worked. And I don't think it ever will. And that's part of it. And that kind of goes to, you know, you talked about four four main things that you were finding, you know, the poor insurance coverage, which we kind of talked about. Um, we don't know a lot about addiction treatment and we got to have more research. Um, we don't make good use of what we do know about addiction treatment and really putting that into practice. So the things that are working, using more of it. And then this last issue of a stigma and that uh, it's difficult for people to, to reach out for help. There's a lot of shame around that and around having addiction. So, yeah, it's just such a it's such a big. I mean, even before this project, I already knew stigma would be a big element of it. Just as somebody who's covered opioid epidemic for a while now, and just addiction in general for a while now. But it, it's just it's amazing in what settings it'll come. Like we're talking about, like even doctors and nurses who are supposed to be caring for people who got into this work, which isn't easy work to get into, to care for people, and right. still they treat people with addiction so differently than their other patients in such a shaming and stigmatizing way. That's, that's really what just, just keeps coming up again and again as I, as I report on this is just how much, how much of a problem that is. So let me, what's your, your hope and your wish uh, for this project and, and what will it do? So I don't have any like particular goals in terms of like, I want this specific law passed or anything like that, but I just hope like, like somebody, like whether it's a policymaker, whether like lawmaker, whether it's an insurance company, somebody is like looking at these stories and saying to themselves, like, look, something is going wrong here. This treatment system is supposed to be one of our main line of defenses against drug addiction, against this drug overdose crisis we're in right now. And it's clearly not serving everyone as it should. Something needs to be done about it. And I mean, there, there are all sorts of ideas that I've like just 
in the few months I've been doing this, like whether it's we need better insurance coverage, we need more accountability for addiction treatment facilities in terms of like making sure they're ca- tracking outcomes and doing the right things. We need more regulation and oversight. I mean, in a lot of states, you like don't even need anyone who's medically licensed to be involved in an addiction treatment. Like that, that to me seems alarming. Like the regulations are just so low right now, they're so little that 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 seems like something that should be fixed. So it's kind of like l- taking like a like again, I, I don't know if there's like any specific law here. I'm honestly just just not 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 comfortable making that kind of uh, decision. I'm not an expert in like what specific policies are required here, but it, it it does seem clear to me that something is wrong, and I hope that just by sh- looking at these stories, shining a light on these stories, showing like these problems of stigma, of insurance coverage, of lack of evidence-based care, as those come up again and again, it should be clear, I hope, to policymakers that something here needs to change. And if there's anybody out there listening to this podcast, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them? Well, I, I would just want them to hopefully... One thing that, that, that we've developed as part of this project is a guide on how to find good addiction treatment. Um, and I hope people can look at that and maybe it'll help them if, that's, if they need care. But I'm also just interested in, I hope that they like, are willing to talk to reporters about their stories. I think that's so important. Obviously, it's difficult because there's so much stigma involved with addiction. But telling your stories is just such, I mean, it's helped me so much in learning what kind of situation people feel and face and all that in life. And I just really hope that as, as I hear more of these stories that I can like, I, I'm, I'm very careful. I do my best to tell them correctly. I, I do my best to respect people's boundaries and all of that. But I think it's just so important to really make it clear that a lot of these people, they're not the stereotypes you see in a lot of media, but they, they're just normal people who want to get help and they have this illness, this medical condition, this disease, however you want to call it, that they need help for. And it's just way too difficult for them to get that help. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to like tell everyone who's struggling with addiction to come up to me and tell me their stories. But it is important to know that like just talking to reporters, telling them about this does help, I think, break the stigma a bit because it shows what it's really like to live with an addiction and try to find care for it. Right. And and if you share your story, someone else is going to be able to relate to that and feel a little less alone. Right. I mean, we've seen this, unfortunately, I think we've seen this with like obituaries in some cases, like some obituaries right. involving like opioid overdoses and other drug overdoses have gone viral in the past few years. And I think a big reason for that is just because those are places where like a family member can just tell somebody's full story. And in that way, it reveals that like, look, this was a normal human being. They could have been so much more if they had just gotten help for this. And I think that not, not only helps like the greater public know, but hopefully I think helps uh, people with addiction feel more comfortable opening up and, and helping fight that stigma that that's around today. Yeah, definitely. Where can people find you or find more information about this project? And how can they find you? Uh, so they can go to vox.com rehab. That's vox.com slash R-E-H-A-B. And pretty much all our stories are there. There, uh, If you go through the stories, you can easily find my contact information. But you can find me on Twitter at G-E-R-M-A-N-R-L-O-P-E-Z. Um, 
I'm, my DMs are open. I usually look through my notifications, even when they get pretty vicious, but I'll look through them and, and just I'm open to talking to people. If you have any story ideas, I'm definitely open to that. Um, but yeah, I, I just hope that like this can serve some good and really help make addiction treatment better because for a lot of people, it's clearly not, not working as well as it should. Well, Herman, thank you so much for coming on and, and just sharing your story about what you're doing and, and coming on to the addicted mind. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the addicted mind podcast. You can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 84. Once again, if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us on iTunes or share the podcast with a friend that you think could benefit. And if it fits for you, share your story. Go to the website, click on the tab on the side and share your message of hope to others out there who may be struggling with addiction or have a loved one who's struggling with addiction. Share your story, share what you've done, share what's worked for you. If that's a fit, just go to the website and do that. I'd really appreciate it and love to hear your voice on the Addicted Mind podcast as well. All right, everybody. I hope that you have a wonderful day and uh, I will talk to you on the next episode. blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.